Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off In-Depth Conversations in Applied Geophysics. In this episode, I speak with John Bradford on SDG's recent statement on climate change. John led the Climate Change Task Force, charged with creating a statement for SDG. The SDG board adopted the position statement in a unanimous vote during its January 2021 meeting. In this conversation, John provides an overview of SDG's position on climate change, the role geophysics plays in achieving a net zero carbon future, and solutions available to address the current climate change. This is an important conversation on the future of the Earth and geophysicists' role to address climate change. This episode is sponsored by TGS. TGS offers a wide range of energy data and insights to meet the industry where it's at and where it's headed. TGS provides scientific data and intelligence to companies active in the energy sector. In addition to a global, extensive and diverse energy data library, TGS offers specialized services such as advanced processing and analytics alongside cloud-based data applications and solutions. Visit TGS.com to learn more. For links to SEG's statement and related reading, visit SEG.org slash podcast. Now for our conversation. So John, you recently led the Climate Change Task Force at SEG that was tasked with revising the SEG's position on climate change. And your work with this task force led to a new statement that was published in February of 2021. Could you provide just a high-level overview of what this statement says? Sure. First, I'd like to acknowledge my co-authors, David Lumley and Maria Angela Capella. So they're two of the SEG board members. We had several things that we wanted to highlight in the statement. So the first thing is just acknowledging that the climate is changing. And and of course, that's uh, always been true for the Earth. The climate is always undergoing change. The second piece of that is recognizing that the current rate of change really is unprecedented as far as we know. So as far as the most recent data indicates, the rate of change of the climate, temperature and change in uh, CO2 in the atmosphere is about a factor of 10 faster than at any previous time in the geologic record. So that's, so that's significant. Um, And that's what differentiates the current change from uh, previous significant changes that the Earth's climate has undergone. The second piece of that is that the current increase in CO2 emissions is primarily due to anthropogenic activity and that this is most likely the cause for the current uh, warming that we see in the climate. Anthropogenic means uh, something that is derived because of human activity. So the, the conclusion of the scientific community is that the current rate of warming that we're seeing is due to CO2, due primarily to CO2 emissions from anthropogenic activity. So this is the most likely explanation for the warming that we've seen since 1950. And the statistical analysis shows that we can be more than 90% certain that anthropogenic CO2 emissions are responsible for the warming that we've seen since since 1950. So that's a a key element uh, that we wanted to highlight. 
Okay, so that's just acknowledging that climate change is happening and that our activity as humans is driving uh, the majority of change that we see currently. Second piece is just recognizing that, you know, the world's scientific community acknowledges this, but it's not just that, it's also industry. So another element that we wanted to to highlight is that uh, oil and gas industry, the mining industry, and, and many other industries acknowledge that CO2 emissions uh, are causing the current level of warming that we see and that uh, something needs to be done about it. And we also wanted to, to highlight that we support uh, those industries in moving to limit the amount of CO2 emissions. And the next piece, uh, which I think is pretty important and is not always well understood is the role that geophysicists can play in helping to both understand climate change and to help mitigate the impacts of climate change. And then the last piece is just a, a call to action, right? There are things that we can do as geophysicists, both to help in understanding uh, climate change and its causes and in uh, taking action to, to help mitigate it. So, so those are the key elements that we wanted to highlight so there's a lot of information packed uh, packed in there. It's relatively dense, and and hopefully we accomplished communicating those key elements effectively. Yeah, one of the things I, I want to pull on is is how geophysicists play a role. I, I'm sure a common question you you probably have gotten from friends and family along the way is what does a geophysicist do? And one of the things you mentioned in the statement is that one way to reduce these greenhouse gas emissions is to shift to sources is just shift to sources and storage of renewable energy uh, like wind and solar. And in doing so, there might be an increase in demand for a broad suite of minerals and metals. How, what role do minerals and metals play? Um, how are they critical to renewable energies? And how, how does geophysics kind of intersect with finding these minerals and metals? So I guess a, a way to lead this off is by recognizing that nothing comes for free, right? So uh, in moving from oil and gas as our primary energy source to relying more on renewables, that comes at a cost of its own, which is that uh, there's, as you said, this increased demand for a suite of metals and minerals, which means that to extract those from the earth, then we have to do a lot more mining and mining has its own a set of issues that we have to that we have to manage. Uh, but if you think about, you know, if we're building a bunch of new wind turbines, one to produce the materials that those wind turbines are built from, uh, you know, including the coils uh, that that create the generators and the and the towers themselves and the blades on the windmills, those all require you know metals and other materials. Similarly, with the solar panels. You know, those are specialized materials that uh, require some elements that are rare and, and challenging to find in the earth. And then we have to, you know, those systems, those energy systems require storage of the uh, electricity as well, uh, which requires batteries. Also, if we're moving towards, uh, instead of internal combustion engines in our cars, that we're moving towards electric cars, those require batteries and batteries require uh specific elements. Lithium uh, batteries, for example, require a lot of lithium, as you might guess from the name. So certain elements like lithium, for example, we may have to increase the production of that by a factor of about a thousand by 2050 to reach the goals. That's a that's a, just an enormous increase. And, and, and this increase goes across a whole suite of, of metals and minerals, as I said, ranging from uh, rare earth 
materials all the way to um, base metals like uh, copper and aluminum. These things are required to to produce these technologies, and uh, that requires a lot of mining and um, also finding the materials to begin with. So the ores that contain these uh, metals are you know, buried in the ground. We have to find those. And that's where geophysics comes in, finding uh, the ore bodies in the subsurface, characterizing their shape and uh, potentially the concentrations of metals that are in them. That's something that geophysics can do. And so I expect that that market for geophysicists is going to grow uh, enormously over the next 10, 20 or 30 years. You know, another a method of reducing CO2 emissions that people might have heard of is is carbon sequestration. And in fact, the U.S. National Academy of Engineering has identified developing carbon sequestration methods as one of the grand challenges for the 21st century. Could you briefly describe how carbon sequestration works and how geophysical tools support this method? So CO2 exists in the atmosphere as a gas. And let's say we can capture that somehow, either either directly out of the atmosphere or at our tailpipe or at the flue from a, a power plant. So we've captured it, we've transported it to some site uh, that's got geology that's suitable for sequestration. Uh, once we have the CO2 there, we can press it. Typically, it's compressed uh, under high pressure until it is placed in a liquid form. And then that liquid is pumped underground into a geologic reservoir. And so that geologic reservoir could be an oil and gas reservoir, and the, the CO2 injection could help extract additional, uh, additional petroleum reserves from the, from the same reservoir and leave the uh, CO2 that was injected into the system underground. Uh, or it may be injected into a different type of system where we're not trying to extract additional oil and gas reserves. In the case where we're trying to extract additional petroleum, that's called EOR, Enhanced Oil Recovery. So we, we uh, push the CO2 in liquid form into the underground reservoir, and the CO2 uh, has different properties than the water uh, that it might be displacing or the oil that it might be displacing. So it has different uh, density, it has different electrical properties. And so that change in physical properties, displacing water uh, with CO2, uh, creates a signature that we can see with the geophysical tools, say seismic methods, or gravity is another tool that can see those sorts of changes, or electromagnetic methods. Uh, all of those can see these changes that are caused by putting CO2 in the subsurface. Now you think about if you want to, if you put CO2 into the subsurface and the goal is to store it there, clearly you don't want it to leak out, right? And that's that's possible in geologic systems if there's a fault or fractures in the in the rock that um, is overlying the CO2 reservoir. So a key component is monitoring uh, the CO2 once we put it there to make sure that it's staying in place. Since CO2 creates such a a clear difference in physical properties, and we can sense that with geophysical tools. Geophysical tools then make a very nice uh, method for monitoring the CO2 as it's uh, in place in the, in the subsurface. That's pretty neat there. You know, I, I think when most people think about climate change, the warming climate, the, the first thing that probably comes to mind is the shrinking of glaciers of the Earth's large ice masses. Do geophysical methods play a role in understanding and mitigating the loss of those large ice masses like glaciers and ice sheets? So they don't, geophysical methods don't really play a role in mitigating the ice loss, but, it, but they certainly play a role in understanding how the 
it, in understanding the ice loss itself, but also in understanding the the mechanisms that are leading to uh, to the ice loss. So I can try to give you a couple of examples. So radar, radar is a tool. One people often think of radar as uh, being used to detect airplanes or incoming missiles or something like that. Um, but you can also direct it into the subsurface, and you can see things underground with radar as well as out in the air or out in space. And it turns out that uh, radar is the tool that has been used uh, most commonly to image the the big ice sheets. So Greenland and Antarctica have been mapped primarily using uh, using radar as a as an imaging tool. So uh, radar is very good for that, and you can measure the thickness of the ice with that. So um, you know, so we can monitor changes in the thickness of the ice uh, with radar. Uh, radar also tends to be very sensitive to liquid water that's in the system. So if the ice mass is melting and there's uh, liquid water associated with that, uh, radar is a good tool for for seeing that water, and we can uh, potentially image where the water is flowing, uh, how much water there is, if there's water at the base of the ice sheet, which lubricates the, the flow of the ice, makes it easier for the, for the ice to flow, which can cause it to accelerate. We can see that, we can see where water is at the base of the ice, and in some cases uh, measure how much, how much water is there. So that, or the study of water within the ice masses is called glacier hydrology, um, and geophysical tools like radar can help significantly uh, with that understanding, and I would expand it beyond that. So it's not just um, it's not just the glaciers, but other large ice masses like permafrost in the Arctic. So as as the climate is warming, more permafrost is melting. As that permafrost melts, it is also allowing soil that contains a lot of uh, organics uh, to start to react and react with the bacteria that may be in the system. And as the bacteria eat those uh, those organic uh, materials that are in the soils, that produces methane. And so the methane can escape and then that causes more warming. So you have a, a feedback loop there. But geophysics can also be, geophysical tools can also be used to monitor permafrost, uh, thickness, uh, liquid water within the permafrost so we can monitor melting within that system. So that's another example of the Earth's large ice masses and how geophysical tools can can help to monitor those, but maybe one that people don't think about quite as much as the big ice sheets and glaciers. That's a good good thing to think about there and remember. And you know, another another thing that kind of struck me in, in reading uh, the statement, you know, one of the the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals is partnerships for the goals, the goals of of the SDGs that they they there are seventeen of them. And could you provide just a sense of the organizations that SDG is joining by concluding that significant action should be taken as soon as possible to begin reducing these greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, certainly. So as I mentioned previously, there's most every scientific society in the world uh, has reached that conclusion. And that includes those in the U.S., like the National Academies of Sciences, the American Geophysical Union, the Geological Society of America. Those are a few examples. But internationally as well, most uh, national academies of sciences in the world have reached that conclusion and many other scientific societies uh, around the world. So there's uh, roughly 200 other scientific societies around the world that have uh, reached that conclusion. Um, but it goes beyond that. 
So industry has reached that as well and it's taking action, has reached those, that conclusion as well. Uh, so there's uh, the oil and gas climate initiative, which includes all of the large uh, oil and gas companies uh, in the world are involved in the oil and gas climate initiative, which is focused on uh, mitigating uh, CO2 emissions. So capturing CO2 and uh, managing that. Um, and then there's the uh, mining industry as well. So there's something called the uh, Torch Sustainable Mining Initiative, which is uh, uh, run out of Canada, but that's a, a consortium of, of mining companies that are uh, working to mitigate climate change in the, in the mining sector as well. And something that's not recognized, we didn't touch on this earlier, so mining industry, you know, has an impact on the on the local uh, environment to be sure, but the mining industry is also responsible for about 10% of the global CO2 emissions. So as we're relying more on mining to get the materials we need for renewables, we also have to manage the climate emissions in that in that industrial sector. And that industry is uh, committed to uh, getting to zero, net zero CO2 emissions as well. So it's a broad spectrum of organizations that SEG is supporting with this statement and, and through our actions. Yeah, it's that type of uh, buy-in from so many different types of uh, parts of, of the impact of this that, that can make a big difference for sure. And in the last sentence of the statement, says that SEG will support its members who are engaged in geophysical research, publication, and open dialogue on climate change and its impacts. It's kind of a, a two-part question. How do you hope geophysicists take action on this statement? And what are some ways that you would like to see SEG take action on its statement? So, first of all, you know, by creating a statement, that's something in itself. So, it just, you know, acknowledges that SEG is an organization uh, recognizes the issue and and uh, will work to help society deal with that in in whatever the the best way that we can is. One of those ways, and I think this is something for the organization and for individual members, is that we can communicate objectively the the science behind our understanding of climate change, but we can also communicate in an objective way. What the uncertainties in the measurements are and, and uh, how that impacts our conclusions. I think another way that we as individuals and as a, a uh, scientific society can take action is by making sure that people who are not necessarily geophysicists yet, but who may uh, have an interest in understanding climate change and, and mitigating its impacts, uh, recognize that geophysics is a profession that gives them an it gives them an opportunity to do that. So that comes from understanding how we can uh, have a role in, in uh, both understanding and, and mitigating climate change uh, and communicating that effectively. So those are uh, those are at least two ways. And I think just being a good a good source of information. So for example, having open dialogue that recognize again, uh, what the science is behind climate change and also its uncertainties and, and discussing how how we might uh, reduce those uncertainties and, and come to a better understanding. And then so this will be the last question here. In working on this statement, and, and you said kind of off air, you've been working on it since 2015. What has been your primary takeaway from from working on this statement over the years? And and what do you hope other geophysicists, what will be their takeaway from reading this statement? Well, so I, I'd say that one of my 
takeaways is that, you know, it's a, a very complex system, both the physical system, our atmosphere and the interactions of Earth with it and the interactions of, of humans with that system, but also, you know, politically, it's a it's a complex system and there are political drivers that, you know, make it challenging, I would say, to uh, communicate and have that, that open dialogue that I think we would all like to have. So hopefully we can get past that. But I, I think one of the key things is just really digging into the, the science and observations and understanding it for yourself, I, I think is, is critical to addressing all of those issues. And one thing that I, I hope that we can get to is to move beyond, you know, discussing this as a political issue, recognizing that it's a reality that we're all living in, that's going to impact us as humans. And not just us as individuals, but everybody in the world is, will be impacted by this. So let's try to move beyond the debate about whether it's occurring and rather debate about what the solutions are for mitigating the problem. Well, that is a, I think that is a, a perfect place to leave it there. Thank you for your dedication over time to, to get this seen through and, and worked out along with, with your collaborators on, on that task force. And thanks again for highlighting it today for the audience uh, of what it's about a little bit. Absolutely. I appreciate the chance to talk about it with you, Andrew. And just uh, one final mention, you know, you all provide a, a pretty thorough list of, of references and resources. So if you're looking to, to want more about the science or just more information to be able to share with your colleagues or your friends or family, it, it's all right there in the statement as well. Yeah, that's a, that was a, a key goal that we had is to make it very much science-based and provide the, the references so that uh, anyone can, uh, can read the background material themselves. It's always a core part of science. So thanks for, for making that a priority. And thanks again for, for speaking with us today about it. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast, Seismic Sound Off. SEG produces these episodes to benefit its members, the geophysics community, and inform the public on the value of the science. To show your support for the show, please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this show. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. Go to the website at seg.org forward slash podcast to find all the episodes and learn how you can subscribe for free directly on your phone. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by Andrew Gary at 51 Features. The SEG podcast team is Ted Bakamjian, Jennifer Crockett, Ali McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.